truly blessed by that song uh, score. And thank you, church, for singing so well. Good morning. My name is Chris Rojas. I'm, good morning. I'm one of the church uh, elders here, um, affirmed by our congregation. And uh, it is truly a, a joy to be with you. I'm so glad to see all of your faces. It's just so, so, it's so precious to be part of this family. And if I, don't, if I don't know you, I look forward to getting to know you um, along with our elder, other elders. Um, uh, this morning, we're going to be returning to the, uh, the, our sermon series, which has been the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we'll be reading out of Matthew 7, uh, 15 and 20. Uh, but before we read the scripture, let's go to prayer and ask God to shine his light on our hearts and our minds for godly living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with clarity through your word. It stands alone. It defines itself. It's true. It's authoritative and stoops to no one. It provides strength to the weak, riches to the poor of heart, and blessings to the downtrodden. As we open your word today, may we be made aware of its power to bring life, preserve life, and defend life. Thank you for your living word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you haven't turned there already, please do open your Bibles um, or open your apps to Matthew 7, 15 through 20. And while you're turning there, um, I want to point out that the Sermon on the Mount is a discourse of Jesus Christ uh, given to his disciples near the beginning of his ministry. Um, it co- it's covered over three chapters, 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And, and up until now, we've studied, uh, we've studied 96 verses. Today, we'll, we'll examine six more which leaves nine remaining. That's a total of 111 verses altogether in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, For those number people. (laughs) Um, Our accountants are like, really? Um, All right, uh, let's let's begin in uh, verse 15. I should probably turn that myself. Verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. That is Jesus' words. So I'd mentioned um, earlier that we had studied 96 verses up until now. And I, I was reflecting on those 96 verses as I studied for this message. And I'm, I'm truly in awe at how comprehensive it is. A couple of weeks ago, Matt Davis mentioned uh, and that the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is, is righteousness. He's right. Uh, in it, we learn about God's righteousness. And we learn about the righteousness that we are called to have in our own hearts and in our own minds and in our own behaviors as we relate with God and as we relate with man. In these 96 verses, I counted 40 commands, 40. 27 of them are in the affirmative, like let your light shine before men and glorify your father who is in heaven. And the other 13 are in the negative, like do not store up for yourself riches on earth. Or, so do not worry about tomorrow. 
In all of these, you can absolutely see the theme of righteousness being communicated from Jesus Christ to these hearers at the Sermon on the Mount and to you and to me. Who better to talk about righteousness than Jesus who knew nothing but righteousness? So 96 verses are all aimed to the hearer to look inwardly and to adopt a new standard of righteousness. But here, here in verse 15, chapter 7, the focus takes a dramatic shift. Jesus takes the eyes of the hearer that he has focused so intently on their inward man and he repositions their eyes to look outward. This morning, well, I wish I could have given you the perfect three-point alliteration that works so very well. I tried, but I could only boil it down to seven. So we're going to go for the... (laughs) So for those taking notes, these are the points for today. And I'll repeat them several times so you can, you can uh, get, not get a cramp writing them so quickly. The first point will be the warning. The warning, which is in verse 15a. The second will be the wardrobe in verse 15b. The third will be the wickedness in verse 15c. The fourth will be the weaponry in verse 16. Fifth will be the worthiness. That's in verse 17 and 18. Sixth will be the worthlessness. It's in verse 19. And lastly will be the watchfulness in verse 20. So maybe if you missed it, it's the warning, the wardrobe, the wickedness, the weaponry, the worthiness, the worthlessness, and the watchfulness. And we'll go over those slowly as we, as we move through this. So our first point verse, begins in verse 15. And, be, and Jesus begins by making a statement. He says, beware. Jesus gives an alarming call to the hearer whose heart and mind have become refocused on the small gate and the difficult way of righteousness that Fred Largen talked about last week. Jesus warns his disciples that they are in danger. Beware. Verse 15, beware of the false prophets. What are we supposed to be aware of? The false prophets. So someone might ask, what's a prophet? Is Jesus talking about people who who read palms or or study tea leaves to predict the future? Or, or maybe someone who shoves paper and cookies or, or, or says that the stars are talking to them and gives you your, your rules to live by for the day and horoscopes. And, well, the, while those might qualify, Jesus is speaking of something far worse. Jesus is talking about people who speak on behalf of God. This can be both men and women. So let me remind you about what's occurring here on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been garnering the attention of the Hebrews as he's been traveling uh, from synagogue to synagogue throughout all of Galilee, teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease. That's what Matthew 4.23 says. And his activity has gained him a large following. You know, uh, 
Side note, Instagram has one, uh, an estimated one billion users. That's 1,000 million. If, if the father had decided to send Jesus, the son, here in 2022 instead of 0 AD and start his ministry up, he would have 1 billion followers. I'm sure of it. But the thing about followers is that though they follow, they don't always like. And here among the crowds of the disciples are those who certainly didn't like what they saw. These are the false prophets. This is intense. Put yourself in that situation. This man just made the scene. And he said all that he's saying. This is intense. What Jesus is doing here in verse 15 is stepping up to the plate. For 96 verses, Jesus has been dictating God's word. He's been prophesying. He's telling them about heaven and its design. He's telling them that he knows the Father personally. He's telling them that they can know the Father personally. So can you. He's telling them, he's telling the people that they have access directly to the Father, unassisted by man. As Moses brought down the word of God from Mount Sinai by tablets, Jesus is bringing down the word of God from the Sermon on the Mount by tongue. He's saying that he is greater than the law and the prophets. He's telling them that he is perfect as his father's perfect and the law and the prophets were designed for him. Here in this sermon, in verse 15, he steps up to the line and challenges the entire religious structure. A system that has been so manufactured, emphasis on the man, to shove words into people's ears as if they came from God's mouth. Their desire was to lead people to a wide gate with broad ways so they could lead them to certain destruction for their own personal gain. So hear the warning, dear Christian. Beware the false prophets. Next, we'll deal with the wardrobe in 15b. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Jesus is such a good teacher. Here, with seven words, he brings us into an analogy that expresses such tenderness to his hearer. He's so quick and it's so inviting to the disciple. He expresses that he views them and me and you as sheep. Such precious animals that need such tender care. They're nearly defenseless. Their best ambition in life is simplicity. A good day in the life of a sheep is to lie down in green pastures and to hang out beside quiet waters. This is a depiction of you and me. There's so much to say about the sheep analogy and how Psalm 23 glorifies the Lord as our shepherd who takes care of all of our needs. But Jesus tells us here that there is a war underneath the wardrobe of the false teacher. 
The false prophets are not slithering snakes basking on rocks or spiders found on your pillow. No, they're men and women. They look just like you and me. They adorn themselves with clothing of a shepherd. They will seemingly say all the right things. They'll seemingly do all the right things. They'll seemingly be all the right things. They will comfort you to gain your trust and to tell you all the things you want to hear. What's certain about them, according to Jesus' words here, is that they come to you. They come to you. What Jesus knows is all that he's already said. You are precious. More precious than birds. More precious than flowers. You are sons and daughters of the Most High God, who is Jesus Christ's Father. You are blessed. You are a city on a hill. You are salt and light. You have value that is not of this world. You are in this world. You are a high commodity. And you are noticed. God the Father has you here to be his people, to be representatives of his place, to achieve his purpose. He sent his truest and best prophet, who is his son, Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd to us. He smelled like sheep. He understands you. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was affiliated, sorry, afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. He understands you as a sheep. And I want to take this moment and implore you to recognize that Jesus came to live the life of perfect submission, like we talked about in the, or sung about in the song, to the Father that you and I could never have lived. Free of sin, he allowed himself to be crushed to death on the cross by the outpouring of God's wrath against sin. Yours and mine in that moment the fullness of God's wrath, his grace, his mercy, and his love intertwined and were put on display for you and me and all the heavenlies to see so that whoever would believe in Jesus Christ would not perish but have eternal life. And this eternal life is afforded to you at no cost except that you release the things that you cling to that causes you to owe. As you cling to those things, you're putting yourself in jeopardy. You're attaching yourself to what it is that has offended God and causes you to be in debt. What God offers is a free, indescribable gift through a dependency on Jesus Christ. Our dependency on ourselves causes us to owe. Our dependency on self-righteousness causes us to owe. Our, Our pursuit to satisfy earthly lusts, it causes us to owe. These are the things that we need to lay at the foot of the cross. They were bought by Christ's blood. 
and you do not need to be enslaved by them any longer. Trust him. He was raised to life after three days in the ground to prove that he is trustworthy. The tomb is empty. Do you wonder why after 2,000 years, this book continues to change lives world round? It's because the tomb is empty. The Lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world, he finished the work. He presented his spilled blood upon the mercy seat. The righteous one was put to death so that the unrighteous might have life. That trade, Bill talked about it in his prayer. Through one man, Adam, all mankind was cast into rebellion and separated from God for all eternity. But through the one man, Jesus Christ, all of mankind can find redemption through his finished work. So if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the time to do it. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when there's a better preacher. It's now. So if you would, please, bow your head. If you have a desire to have Jesus Christ as your good shepherd and his father is yours, I would like you to bow your head with all of us and pray with me this simple prayer. You can do this in your heart. Heavenly Father, I believe that you love me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm helpless to save myself. I know that you sent your son who died in my place so that I could be freed from the penalty of my sin. I believe that he can save me. I accept your invitation to be your child through Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you now have new life. Please come talk to me or anybody here on the stage or any of the elders, any of the leadership here. We want to celebrate that with you. And if you have, we need to get you baptized right away. Next week. So now, for both new believer, which might be you right now, and seasoned believer, which is many of you who I know, Jesus' warning of those playing with the religious wardrobe is real. Let's find out a little bit more about these people as we examine our next point, the wickedness. Verse 15, part C. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So yes, betraying themselves as lovely, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled, knowing scripture front and back, these prophets are anything but your friend. They are not just wolves, they are ravenous. The nature of these false prophets is rooted in extortion. They are robbers, spiritual predators. They set you up to take you down. Jesus' description of them as wolves is on point. And what a perfect teacher. Amen? These fiends are enemy of the flock. Their motivation is their insatiable appetite. They are smart. 
They know how to work in a community and as a community. They practice honing their skills. They love to toy with their prey. And they fear and hate the good shepherds. We got some good shepherds here, men. And you ladies who are watching over our young ladies, you keep at it. On the outside, you and I would never know what occurs with them on the inside. They writhe in agony to see faithful people mature. All they know is selfishness and sordid gain. And their tactics are numerous. But their best move is to isolate the sheep by drawing them away from the good shepherds with lies. And I've just barely scratched on the surface of the wickedness. But we have to move on. We'll never get through this thing. Let's... So let Christ's warning of those who play in the religious wardrobe and and their wickedness ruminate in your minds as we move to our next point, which is the weaponry. The weaponry. So to give greater elaboration on these false prophets, Christ moves from the flocks versus fiends to fruits versus thistles. Let's read verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? I want to tell you a story that happened to me and my wife when we moved into our house. Um, It was an absolute wreck, inside and out. Um, It's still under construction after five years. (laughs) Definitely an attribute of shoemaker's son not having shoes kind of a thing. Totally guilty. Anyhow, Kelly and I love to garden. Whenever we see a little bit of soil, you you can absolutely find Kelly sitting there putting a seed in it. And so one day, randomly, a a pretty plant surfaced outside of the patio cover. It wasn't from Kelly, just kind of happened. And it was was in this perfect spot between the two columns. I can see it right outside my slider. And and it all seemed so perfect, so I decided to keep it. I cared for it daily. We we, we don't have sprinklers, so I watered it all by hand. I gave it some nutrients. I put my coffee grinds on there, hoping that would help. It was a slow grow, and the plant was beautiful. It had different shades of greens and yellows, and and had nice sturdy stalk and branches, and it kept getting bigger and wider. Weeks went by, and and, and it had my daily attention. I was so super curious about what kind of beautiful flower or fruit might produce from it. Um, it started getting a little bu- some little bulbs, and I got s- excited. This little thing that I watched grow, nurturing it all along, was finally going to reveal itself for what it was. I was so surprised when it finally developed, and this sweet little thing turned out to be a weed. <laughs> Not just any weed, one of those weeds that produces those spiky balls that get snaggled in my dog's hair and it's impossible to take out without tearing her hair out. And and we go on walks and it's in her feet and she's screaming in agony. My my affections immediately turned to anger. (laughs) And I couldn't have ripped that thing out of the ground any faster. I'm still mad. (laughs) So back to the text. Um, What Christ says about these false teachers, after saying that they are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing, is that you need to consider them as extremely dangerous. He then tells us there is a way to identify them. For the first time on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the example of fruit. Why fruit? Why does Jesus go from the wolf analogy to fruit? He could have easily stayed with the wolf analogy and taken the little red riding hood approach. What big ears you have. What big eyes you have. What big large hands you have. What a terrible big mouth 
you have. If you recall my story about the weed in my backyard, I'll tell you what made me so angry. It was not my disdain for that plant, which I hate those plants. I wish that they would just be like gone, out of existence. I'll tell you what made me so angry. It was the time I spent. It takes time to develop fruit. 1 Timothy 3 provides qualifications of being an elder in the church. Verses 6 through 7 highlight that an elder cannot be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a, a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Jesus' disciples are called to take the time necessary to see what kind of growth occurs in a prophet, a teacher, or a leader. Beware of false prophet. In my analogy, the fruit was a thistle, just like Christ explains at the end of verse 16. And that word thistle, in the original language, it means a three-barbed missile. Just like the one in my yard, no matter how much watering I would have done, no matter how much nutrients, no matter how much shade, sun, pruning that I, that I would have attended to that plant with, I should never have expected it to produce anything but thistles. Never should I expect to see a grape or a fig come from it. And the terrible thing about a thistle, it's a, that, it's that it's a seed. It's a seed. This is their weaponry. They attack with barbs and thorns. They draw you in close so that you can be tangled in their clutch. To break away from them is hard and it usually causes grief. It's fascinating that Jesus interjects a rhetorical question here. There are 16 rhetorical questions that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Each one of them seems to be causing the hearer to say no, or I don't know, or I can't. Each one seems to elicit emotion. In this case, I think Jesus understands the pain associated with the attacks of the false prophets. The clear answer to his rhetorical question, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? What's the answer? No. No. In my story, I was angry that I had to tear the plant out because I had attributed worthiness to this weed. Jesus' aim is to challenge both the hearer that's listening, those are his disciples, and likely the false prophets who are hearing. He's working towards a conclusion to this address that will be a warning to all. And that leads us into our next point about worthiness. Jesus says in verse 17 and 18, So, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Here Christ sets the stage for worth. He moves from talking about specific fruits to adding a specific quality check, a pass or fail. 
to all fruits. The past is associated with good fruit. The fail is associated with bad fruit. Listen to how simple Jesus makes this. Thankfully, even a hard-headed guy like me can understand this. Good fruit, good trees. Bad fruit, bad trees. Good tree, no bad fruit. Bad tree, no good fruit. It's so simple, right? He's, he's such a great teacher. He's not splitting hairs here. He's offering full clarity in this analysis. But wait, wait one second. Maybe this isn't so simple. Something might be overlooked here. If Jesus is drawing a line of quality, informing his disciples to beware of, this, of the false prophets and giving a standard of pass or fail, isn't that instruction to judge? If that's instruction to judge or discern, how does that relate to chapter 7 verse 1 when he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged? I'd like to explore that for just a few minutes here. And maybe that answer, if, if you would turn there quickly, so I think it's probably only one page or a swipe over. Maybe the answer is found in verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Well, that kind of makes me want to say that there should be no standard. And then everybody gets a pass. Woohoo! Well, that can't be, because that would make lawlessness. And mankind would just annihilate themselves. Anarchy can't be the answer. Maybe we should read more to understand more. Verse 3, 4, and 5. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then we will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there's an order of operation. Before I pass judgment on another's fruits, I should first ensure that I have personally applied that judgment to my own fruits and to be sure that I'm not being hypocritical. That kind of makes sense so that when I've helped my brother with what might be a weed in his life, having dealt with my own garden first, maybe there'll be no more weeds ever. I would love to never see that type of weed again. Dastardly weed. That sounds like a good policy to judge by. But what standard should we use? Who do we ask? Maybe the answer is in the next verse. Let's read on. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn, their, turn and tear you to pieces. Well that seems oddly placed. But I do seem to recall another discussion about canines. Where was that? Ah, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are what? Ravenous wolves, the canines. Jesus is saying to, to these, his disciples, stop going to the false prophets for answers. He's saying that our questions on how to live righteously are pearls. And the teachers of the law at that time are swine. 
They will abuse what goodness there is in your request for guidance and assassinate you with the intimate knowledge. The enemy has a way of extorting, huh? They love to know juicy bits of gossip so that they can take you down. So, that tells me who not to go to. I still don't know where to obtain that standard of judgment. Maybe if we read further. Go to verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? A rhetorical question. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a, a snake? Will he? Rhetorical question. Eliciting emotion. If then, being evil, know how, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? So, Jesus is saying, don't ask the false prophets any longer for rules of judgment, but go to God directly through prayer. All these years, they've been going to these guys the wise guys, right? And asking how they can righteously judge their brother. Jesus is now saying that they have direct access to the Father through prayer. And if they judge themselves first, then they can become an effective tool to help their brother. And they don't need the teachers of the law to judge for them any longer. So now we have the policy and the standard to judge bad fruit. But what about the standard to live and produce good fruit? Maybe if we read a little more, we'll get some insight. Verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Well, wait a second. That's a very simplistic Statement to summarize all that the teachers of the law have been drilling into these people for all these years. But I suppose that if, if they do unto others how they would want done unto them, then that would produce good fruit. Who would hurt themselves willingly? Who would want to be stolen from? Who would want someone oogling their wife? Who would want to be lied to? Who would want any of the Ten Commandments to be done to them? Nobody in their right mind. That's so different than the 613 commandments to the teachers of, that the teachers of the law had been pushing. I, I'm, I'm super intrigued and I, want, I would like to just know a little bit more. That's what the Word of God does. It creates a hunger in you. Let's, let's just, there's two more verses before we, before we move into our, back into our main text. Enter through the narrow gate, verse 13. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. I want you to hold on to that. That's what Fred talked about last week. Hold on to that because at the very end of this, we're going to read a passage that's so awesome. It's so awesome. Mm, hang on. So 613 commandments seem broad. Would you agree in comparison to the one? 
That seems narrow. Jesus' way is far more convicting and leaves no room for loopholes. In light of bringing clarity to verse 17 and 18, this overview of chapter 7 would certainly alarm the teachers of the law, the ruling religious elite. In it, Jesus has stripped them of their authority to judge. Not only that, but he has stripped them of their position to teach. Uh-oh. Them be fighting words. Now it makes it quite clear why his disciples should, verse 15, beware of the false prophets. Because now the true disciple can judge worthiness with a clear standard, standard to live worthily. With a clear standard given by the true judge, the true life, the true prophet, the true son of the living God, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. This leads us into our next point regarding the false prophets, and that's their worthlessness. Verse 19 says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Ooh, hold on to that one too. That'll be part of the verse. The judgment is clear. There is a standard of living and a standard of judging that is correct. It does not veer to the right or to the left, and it is governed by righteousness that is merciful. The false teacher will always be pulling back to what gives them most control. This generally has to do with the dependency and an obedience to stringent rules and a guilt system. A dear pastor friend of mine and yours, you don't know him, he refers to this as God plus. More broadly, that means to allow something else to share the glory that should be given only to God. For instance, God plus science. Or God plus family. Or God plus country. Or God plus tradition. The list goes on and on. When you start sharing that glory that belongs to God with his creation, something's awry. Is science bad? No. Is family bad? No. Is government bad? No. But these are creations of God and they don't deserve his glory. His creation is to glorify him. There's a reason these false prophets, that there's a reason they do this. The reason they share God's glory with other things is because they cannot bear good fruit. So you'll find a random grape shoved into their thorn bush or a fig among their thistles. They will lure you in with their mastery of what is created because the creator is not their master. And before you know it, they will have you ensnared. The painful thing about the false prophet is that yet again, they have the appearance of righteousness, but it's a ruse. Once these false prophets are identified, the disciples should do what they would do with anything worthless. Good trees are to be favored, and bad trees, they're to be fired 
free yourself and get away from these people. Do not be caught up with these people who lead you on broad ways with wide gates. They are on the path of destruction and will devour, trample, and draw you into the fire with them. This brings us to the last point of the watchfulness in verse 20. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Here, Jesus closes his cautionary message with strength and authority and assuredness. Jesus has not meandered his way to this communication and he is absolutely stepping up to the line of righteous living and calling all his disciples to do the same. The Sermon on the Mount was polarizing. His claims required a response. It required required a response from the disciple who was listening. It elicited a response from the false teachers who heard. And not only that, but it requires a response from you and I today of righteous judging and righteous living to the glory of God the Father. In this closing statement, Jesus makes it crystal clear that the false teachers would be revealing themselves in due time. We are called to be watchful. His message to the disciple was to examine those who claim to be spokesmen of God. This wasn't a message to the elder board. This was a message to all of Jesus' disciples young and old, male and female, master and slave. With prayerful and humble hearts, trimmed with the scalpel of God's word, we, dear brothers and sisters, can be confident that false teachers can be identified. Understanding that there's a potential for deception should cause you and me to heed Christ's calling to beware, beware, beware. There's a danger. This is seriously dangerous. Brothers and sisters, it's imperative to hold anyone who claims to be a teacher of God's word accountable. I know I'm putting myself up there for the slaughter, but it's true. It could be from the pulpit. It could be from a classroom. It could be from a home environment. It could be a couple of silly boys who show up on white shirts calling themselves elders. I don't get it. But there's something to say here. How do you hold these people accountable? Let me give you a few verses. Please turn with me to 1 John 4, 1 through 3. As a side note, uh, the youth group is just about to enter a sermon series in 1 John of the book of 1 John. And one of the things that the youth group is lacking is, is uh, mature women. Um, they could really use some help. And in light of defending against false teachers and that, that pull the wayward sheep aside, these, these young ladies really need you. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard 
that is, that is coming and now is already in the world. So the first thing that you need to solidify is if they confess Jesus Christ to be God. That's number one. If you didn't write anything else down today, remember that. This is how you identify false prophets. Do they claim Jesus Christ as God? And he is. There's no wiggle room for that. First John says, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word is a person. Who is that person? In John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Never let anybody say it otherwise. And if they do, ding, 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 right off the bat, out, get out. I don't want you. I don't want, I don't want to hear you. Leave me alone. This is the truth. Jesus is God. The next step is found in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. Please turn there. It's just a couple, three books over. First Timothy. I'll give you a second to get there. Chapter 6, 3 through 5. I love hearing those pages rustle. That's, those are people who are eating. Good, good food. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5 says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of a gain. Notice that doctrinal agreement with Jesus Christ is number two. Number two. Do, do, do that, do the false, does the teacher, the leader, the preacher in front of you, does his words align with Christ's words? And then, thirdly, a life that is lived consistent with that doctrine. Number three, a life that lives consistent with that doctrine. Apart from those three qualifiers, you have a conceited, spiritual imposter who is fascinated by perversion and confusion. These people love to argue about semantics and pose questions that are nonsensical, that lead to discord among the brethren. They have depraved minds. They only know lies. And they believe godliness is an activity of the flesh. These people are often giants of morality. Who know nothing about grace through faith. They'll preach it. But wait. They're waiting in the lurch. To chop your head off. When the time is suiting for them. In my sermon prep, I'm, I, I was overwhelmed with how much content there is in the scriptures on false prophets. It starts in Genesis with the serpent in the tree and is riddled all the way to Revelations 20. I'd like you to turn there if you would please. This is that, this is that one. Remember I told you about the, the narrow gate and the, and the wide gate and, and remember the fire. Mm, here it comes, folks. Revelations 20, verse 7 through 10. 
This is following a physical thousand years of an earthly reign of Christ. We read in verse 7. I'll give you a second to get there. Take a sip of water. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Remember, the many, not the few, the many. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth, right? The broad plain, like Fred was talking about. And surrounded, and sur- and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. How do you get into a city? But through the gate, the small gate. And the devil who deceived them, I'm sorry, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Right? What is the tree, the bad tree good for? Fire. Get them fired. Right? And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Oh, that lovely trio. That's what they get. And that's what any false prophet gets. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the doom of the false prophet. Brother and sister, I want you to be encouraged that you are equipped And that you can be more equipped the more you study God's word and ask him for wisdom. But remember those three. Do they say Jesus is God? Do do their doctrines align with Christ's? And are they living it out? Remember that. Hang on to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to free us first and foremost from the ties of sin that bind, but also to righteous judging and living. It's through righteous living that you are glorified. May you be glorified in our hearts, our minds, our strength, and our very being. You've made it clear that we are at war. This is a real enemy that wishes to to devour and lay waste believers. He prowls around like a lion and he is unstoppable without your influence. He has minions of angels and humans. Thank you for always providing a way out with your scripture that gives us insight and exactness to discern what is from you and what is not. Please help us know your will and let us know how to discern good fruit from bad fruit so that we can know which trees to keep in our garden and which to toss away. Give us strength of heart to know how to discern and courage to act. Thank you for your Sermon on the Mount that has so richly blessed us and I look forward to studying with my church family what your son has to say next. We ask you to bless us, bless us with your wisdom that comes from above so that we may beware and be ever vigilant to watch for those sneaky people who make the gospel God plus or God minus. They know what tickles the ear. Please make us discerning.